Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos, chapter 5. Amos, chapter 5. Don't be embarrassed if you need to go to the front of your Bible and look in the concordance to find out where, or table of contents, not the concordance, table of contents to find out where Amos is. It's probably that section in the Bible that is less used, somewhere in the middle. Amos, chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background as to Amos itself. We're hopping in in chapter 5. Um, the book of Amos is a series of sermons preached to the nation of Israel. Amos, he's a shepherd from Tekoa, which is in the southern kingdom in Judah, and he has gone into the northern kingdom, Israel, and he's preaching against them. And he's done it in a very tactful and wise way. He's no slouch. He may be a shepherd, but that doesn't mean he's dumb. Um, He has, what he did in chapter 1 was, he pronounced God's judgment against the nations, the surrounding nations of Israel, against Damascus and Philistia, Tyre, Edom. He, he actually did it in a way where he, he starts, I know I'm not supposed to turn my back to you guys, but pretend this is a map, right? And you've got the Mediterranean Sea, and you've got, you got Israel here, right? He actually, he condemns these guys, then these guys, then these guys, then these guys, then a couple over here across the Jordan, then Judah right to the south of Israel. And what he's done is he's basically, in all the surrounding nations, he's drawn some form of a circle around the nation of Israel. And Israel would have been going, yeah, right on. Right on, Amos. Judge them heathens. Judge those guys who have brought pain upon us. They've hurt us. We are the people of God. Judge them. And then he turns the tables in chapter 2 and he says, no, you've sinned just like them. You're no better than they are. In fact, you should have known better. You had the revealed word of God. You had God reveal himself to you, teach you, enter into a covenant with you. You should know better, and yet you're no better than the other nations. He sucked them in, in a very wise and tactful way. And they're they're condemned for many things. Social sins, oppression, bribery, the lack of justice, they're condemned for personal sin, sexual immorality, greed, anger, hate, and the list is actually much bigger. This is just a quick summary. They're condemned for religious injustices, ignoring, rejecting, silencing God's word, which it's one thing to ignore what God says. It's another thing to outright reject what God says, and then it's almost another step further to outright want to silence what God has said. No more. No more speaking. They've done religious things, but they're boastful in their tithing. They've given improper sacrifices in all the wrong ways and all the wrong places. The Israelites have gone above and beyond what it means to sin in the sight of God. Then we come to Amos chapter 5. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Let's just pray before we look at this passage a little bit further. 
Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time, this opportunity to come into your presence, to hear from you, from your word, that you spoke through your prophet, Amos. We pray that you would help us to see clearly what it is that Amos was speaking from you to the people of Israel and what you speak to us now. We pray that you would help us to put aside distractions and things that might cause us to not see you clearly. We want to see who you are. We want to understand you better. We want to be in a better relationship with you. We want to come to know you more. And we want to be more like Jesus. And we ask that you would use this passage in a way this morning to help us do that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So all the condemnations that have taken place in chapters 1 through 4 against the other nations and against Israel, they have left just a terribly grim, hopeless feeling moving into chapter 5. The status of Israel does not look good because, yes, God will judge the other nations, but he will also judge Israel, specifically because that's what the covenant that he made with Israel says. Do what I say and be blessed, don't do what I say, and be cursed. That's going all the way back to Exodus through Deuteronomy. These, these are the stipulations of the covenant that God made with his people. Do these things, and you things will go well with you. But moving into chapter 5, the status of Israel does not look good. Look again in verse 1 and 2. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. God is talking through Amos about a future event, the future destruction, the future exile that's going to come upon his people. And yet he talks about it in the past tense. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. He talks about it in the past tense about a future thing which indicates that it's as good as done. It hasn't happened yet, but in God's eyes, it is. Fallen virgin Israel. Israel is likened graphically to a young girl, to a virgin who's been used, abused, and abandoned in the wilderness, cast aside, deserted, with no one there, no one whatsoever to lift her up, to pick her up, to help her. Israel is decimated. They're whittled down to nothing. Look in verse 3. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. It doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter how strong your fortresses may be. You will not stand against what God has proclaimed to happen. Utter decimation, whittled down to nothing. Israel's future looks hopeless. And the question is why? What was their failure? What did they do? And we, we could go back through chapters 1 through 4 and go, well, they, they did a number of things. But verse 4 says, this is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. That is, the implication is, you are not going to live because you do not seek me. You are not seeking after me. They did not seek the Lord. And you will not live because you do not seek him. Israel thought that they were right with God, that they were in a right relationship with God because they went to these places on pilgrimages. In verse 5, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba. And each of these places represented a different claim. They represented something to the the people of Israel, to God's people, because of what happened in those places in their history. In Bethel, 
they would go there, and the claim that they would make is, we have met with God. When they went to Beersheba, they would claim that God is with us. And when they went to Gilgal, they would claim the blessings of God. God has blessed us. He owes us blessings. We are his people, and he owes us these things. Bethel took its name from its spiritual reality. Do you remember the name Bethel? You remember that, right? You've heard of that before? What does the name Bethel mean? I heard it, house of God. That's right. The spiritual reality that Jacob experienced in Genesis is how it got its name. This is where God is. Remember Jacob, he's, he's going to his uncle Laban's house and he stops and he puts a rock under his head, which is the weirdest thing. I would rather sleep with nothing under my head than a rock. I don't know why he chose a rock, but he sleeps with a rock under his head and he has that vision of the, the ladder going up and down um, in between heaven and earth and angels ascending and descending. And when he wakes up, he goes, God is in this place. God is here. And he also speaks with God there. God reveals himself to Jacob in that place. This place, Bethel, was important not just for Jacob, but for the history of Israel. This is where God met with Jacob. This is where God spoke to Jacob. It's where he revealed himself to Jacob. And in speaking and meeting with God, Jacob was never the same after that. The first time, he's running from his brother to his uncle. And, and he's terrified. He's not sure what's going to happen. He meets with God, and he makes a covenant with God, a promise with God, a recognition that God is here and God is going with me. God is with me as I go forward in my future. I don't know what's going to happen, but God is with me. He had this spiritual renewal after meeting with God. Then the second time he was there on his way back, after being with his uncle Laban for a couple of decades, he, he's returning and he's terrified about meeting his brother, whom he swindled and stole things from. And his brother was a vindictive warrior, so you can imagine how terrified you'd be. He's not quite sure. And at Bethel, he meets with God again. God speaks to him again, and he's given a new name. No longer will you be called Jacob, you will be called Israel. Not only is he changed spiritually, but he's actually given a, a, a name change to signify the change that's happening in Jacob. Now, Jacob wasn't perfect, but he had met with God, and God did something in him that resulted in change. You do not go to Bethel, you do not meet with God, and have no change. When you meet with God, there is always change. Meeting with God resulted in life renewal, spiritual renewal. It, it meant the old man disappearing and the new man coming in. Jacob's gone, Israel's here. Israel went to Bethel and claimed to have met with God, but they showed no effects of his life-changing presence. They went to Bethel saying, yes, God is here and we are going to meet with God in this place. But later in chapter 5, verses 7 to 13, is Amos' proof that you've never met with God. If you had met with God, you would love God's law, not hate it. If you had met with God, you would treat people properly and not take advantage of them. You would care more about God's approval than man's. 
You would have more integrity, not depravity. You would adhere to social order, not despise it or fear it. He, he walks through these things and he says in verse seven, there are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. That's the opposite proof of you meeting with God. If you had met with God, you wouldn't be like this. So why no change? They, they go to Bethel, they claim to have met with God, but there's no change. There's no change in their attitude. They go to Bethel looking this way and they leave Bethel going, looking that way, doing the exact same things. Why? Well, either God was unable to change them, he's not powerful enough, which seems unlikely given verses eight and nine. Look there, verse eight. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to a ruin. God can change things. He can change the seasons, the Pleiades and the Orion, representing the seasonal changes, the way they marked the seasons. God can change the seasons. He can change things daily. He turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night. He can change things like that. He does occasional changes, devastating changes, like calling waters out of the, out of the sea, and he pours them out over the face of the land, something that might actually represent rain. It might also represent tsunamis. God does change things. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to a ruin. You think of Jericho, right? No weapons. I saw something on the History Channel once that the Israelites were the first people to create audio technology that could destroy buildings. That was a cool theory. Uh, horribly unbiblical. <laughs> Why did it fall? Because God did it. He destroyed it in a second. He used his people in a very odd way. They obeyed and God destroyed. God brings about change. He's not unable to change people. He's not unable to change things. He's not unable to change the tides. He's not unable to change the seasons. He enacts change. So it's not that he's unable to change them, but perhaps God didn't want to change them. Maybe he didn't have the desire to change them, which also seems unlikely given verses four and six. The repeated phrase, seek me and leave, live. Seek the Lord and live. Why would he call for his people to seek after him so that he might give them life if he didn't want to? Well, the only other explanation is that they didn't actually meet with God. That going to any specific place, regardless of what you claimed, if you don't meet with God, it doesn't matter. Coming to church doesn't matter if you don't meet with God. Coming here and doing this does not matter if you do not meet with God. Israel claimed to have met with God, but they showed no evidence of change. Because when you meet with God, change happens. For better or worse. Change happens when you encounter the living God. You think of Saul, on his way to Damascus, met with the living, risen Christ. Literally knocked him off his horse. Change happened. Now there are people in the Gospels who had met with Jesus, who had seen Jesus, who had been around Jesus, and yet nothing changed. We'll get to that in a sec. Beersheba. They went on a journey to Beersheba, and this was the claim that they made. 
God has proclaimed over and over and over again in the history of Israel to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I am with you. I am with you here. And I am with you wherever you go. Israel claimed divine companionship on the basis of their pilgrimage to this place. If we go to this place and lay hold to that claim that was true for our ancestors, it must be true for us. It doesn't matter what our lives look like as long as we go to that place. But if that were true, if God was truly with them, they would be seeking love. They would be seeking good and not evil. They would love good and not evil. Look in verse 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil and love good. If God was truly with you, you would love the things that he loves. You would hate the things that he hates. You would have his desires, his wants. You cannot claim to walk with God and show no knowledge of his holiness, his desires, his glory. You can't claim to have met with him and you can't claim to actually be in communion, fellowship, relationship with him and show no evidence whatsoever of actually knowing who he is, of not knowing anything that he's like. Therefore, there will be despair among the people. Verses 16 and 17. Therefore, this is what the Lord The Lord God Almighty says there will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in the vineyards for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. There's despair among the people. They claim to be in relationship with God but there would not be despair if you were in relationship with God. There's inescapable doom in verses 18 and 19. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite it. This is the picture of somebody who's fleeing the day of the Lord, fleeing God himself as he brings his judgment, as his presence actually comes into effect. And it's like, meeting a lion on the road, being afraid of that lion, as you should be, by the way, and running from that lion only to meet a bear. You outrun a lion, which seems very unlikely. Like, unless it's the lion at the Toronto Zoo that really does no running whatsoever, you're not likely to outrun a lion, right? But let's say that you've outrun that lion. Let's grant you that one very next to impossible thing. You outrun that lion and you meet a bear, which I don't know how fast bears run. I've heard 30, 40, 50 kilometers. I have no idea. Some of them can climb trees. Let's say you outrun that bear and you run into a house. As if a bear couldn't get into a house. Like that's, do you see the inescapableness of what's happening? And he gets into that house and he's exhausted because he's just outrun a bear and a lion and he puts his hand against the wall and there's a snake in the wall. Now, we have drywall and screws that hold our walls together. Um, Imagine a house that's built together with sticks and straw and whatever else you have. Nature itself to hold things together. Snakes can easily get in. You, you You just rest yourself up against that wall and a viper comes out, a snake comes out to bite you. Even in the safety of your own home, you cannot escape God. And the cause of all this the cause of the despair, the cause of the inescapable doom, the cause of the darkness is somewhat ironic because in verse 17, last half of verse 17, 
There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst. The very thing that they claimed to walk with God, to be with God, to have met with him, and to know him, to be in fellowship and communion with him, they give evidence of having none of that. And the ironic thing is, is that when God shows up, when God is actually in their midst, these terrible things happen. The Lord's presence is what causes these things. So, so he says, don't, don't go to Bethel. That gets you nothing. Don't go to Beersheba. Don't go to Gilgal, which represented the gift of the promised land. This was the, the first encampment the Israelites had when they came into the promised land. They set up their first camp at Gilgal. They set up um, the monument there. So when children would ask, Dad, what is this for? You tell them what God did. You tell them what God did in getting his people out of Egypt. They reconstituted the covenant at Gilgal. They experienced the first fruits of the promised land. This was like all of the good stuff. This was the starting point. This is where we remember what God has done and what he's bringing us towards. It was Joshua's headquarters as Joshua went out and conquered the other nations, driving the other nations out. He always came back to Gilgal. That was the one point where this this represents the promised land itself. It's the starting point. It's the place where God has given his promises to us. And they claimed that they were doing what God commanded, that they had followed through with God with what God wanted, so God owed them his gifts. God, you said if we do what you want, you'll bless us. Well, we're doing what you want. And yet, what they were doing was nowhere near what God wanted. They had a misconstrued idea of the law, of what God wanted, because they had a misconstrued idea of who they were and who God was. They had no idea. They, they, they didn't have in their heads properly understanding themselves or God. They didn't understand their own sinfulness and they didn't understand God's holiness. They claimed to be doing what God commanded, what God wanted. They had lots of religious activities, but God didn't accept any of it. Look in verse 21 and 22 and 23. Listen to these words. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. I hate I despise, I will not accept, I will not listen. Why? Because for all their religious activity, for all the things that they did in the name of God, their lives didn't match up. Their lives didn't look like it. So to come to church, their equivalency of church, sing songs, even give offerings, when your life does not match Sunday, in this case, whatever other day of the week they were offering all these sacrifices, if your life does not match this, doesn't matter. God doesn't care about one day or one offering or one thing that you do in the name of religion because that's all that they were trying to do. Look, let's just check the list to make sure that we get all of our ducks in a row and then God will bless us. He'll keep us safe. 
yeah, that's right, Amos. You tell us about how God's going to judge all those other nations, how they've hurt us, how they've damaged us. And then they would have been terribly shocked when Amos says, yeah, and your lives are no better. You claim to know God, to have met with God. You claim to do the things that he wants, and yet your lives show no representation of that. Your lives look nothing like that. They display no self-awareness for either their sin or God's holiness. This is something I think we are in danger of doing, not intentionally, although that is possible. And I want to be careful with how I say it. Of over-preaching, take this with a grain of salt, please. We are in danger of over-preaching the grace and mercy of God and forgetting his justice and wrath, how much he hates sin. We, we are in danger of promoting the love of God over the holiness of God instead of recognizing that God is love and he is holy. He is both of those things together. So we, we fall into a danger of claiming like the Israelites, look, we are the people of God. He has said so. We have entered into a covenant with him. We go to the place where he is. He walks with us. We are in a relationship with him. And look, we do all the religious thing that he wants us to do. God owes me. God will keep me safe. And we forget how much God hates sin. Verse 26. And this is quoting uh, a commentator. These are not my words. So, Don't get me in trouble. This is what he says. What stupidity. Verse 26. You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. See, these guys, they claimed to do all the religious things that God wanted, and yet, clearly, they had violated some of the, just the standard basic, have no other God before me. Command. You've lifted up these things. What stupidity to lift up an idol that you made, to lift up a God that you made, to worship something other than God himself. Evidence of true religion is a life characterized by holiness and obedience to God's word. James says something similar in the New Testament, right? Faith is not dead. I'll show you my faith by my works, by my deeds, by how I live. I will show you that my life is changed by how I live. Not perfectly. But because meeting with God, regardless of the magnitude of the change, always results in change. Always. Therefore, verse 27, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. The Lord's name is referenced as the Lord God Almighty a number of times in chapter 5 for a number of reasons. One, I think to just make sure you know you're not getting out of this. You're not escaping this. This is as good as done. The Lord God Almighty This isn't what Amos says. 
This isn't what the surrounding nations, this isn't what the the Assyrians say. This isn't what King Nebuchadnezzar says. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. You will go into exile. A bleak, gloomy, hopeless future for Israel. The, The prophets are somewhat discouraging if, if you read them not carefully because death, destruction, exile, what, what hope is there? And we, we can even look back through the history of Israel and go, yeah, the Lord God Almighty, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. So what hope is there? What future is there? It would be hopeless. It would be bleak. It would be gloomy if not for the phrase, seek the Lord and live. This is what the Lord says to Israel in verse 4. Seek me and live. This is what the Lord says in verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Don't seek these other places. Don't seek religious activities, as important as they may be. Don't, don't seek to earn your way to God. Don't seek church. Don't seek relationship with other people. Seek the Lord. For all that they did, they missed the one important piece of the puzzle. Seeking God. Well, how how do I know if I've actually met with God? You've changed. Big, small, in massive ways, little ways. How do you know that you've met with God this morning? There's change. Now, that doesn't mean that you've drastically changed your theology. I hope that I haven't done that to you. Um, Although maybe you you need a drastic change in that, so I'll leave that between you and the Lord. Moving on. Meeting with God means that you're never the same because he makes big changes and little changes. He makes seasonal changes and he makes daily changes. God changes things. Seek him and live. There's a question in verse 15, the last half of verse 15. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Perhaps, maybe, we're not quite sure. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty, perhaps he will have mercy on us. Perhaps he will, if you seek. Perhaps. And the question of verse 15 doesn't look like it's answered in the positive sense because there's exile. It doesn't look like God actually has mercy on his people until Jesus. Until Jesus shows up. Because perhaps God will have mercy. Perhaps he will. And the answer in, G- in Jesus is a guaranteed yes. He will have mercy if you come to Jesus. One of the the major things that you can't help but miss as you read through the book of Amos is God always sees sin. He's not stupid. He's not hiding in a corner. God always sees your sin. And the second thing that goes along with that is God always punishes sin. He never lets sin go unpunished. Yes, maybe for a time, but he always punishes sin. That sounds bleak and that sounds hopeless. Until Jesus. How can God's justice and mercy come together? How can God's grace and God's hatred of sin come together? It's Jesus. 
Because yes, God always punishes sin, but God doesn't punish sin twice. Now, he may punish the same sin twice. if It's done multiple times. But if somebody goes to jail for committing murder, whatever the penalty for that is in Canada, I don't know. You go to jail for committing murder. You're in jail for 25 years. Then you're released from prison. You're released. You've served your time. You've received your adequate judgment. You are not picked up a week later, retried and condemned for that murder that was that happened 25 years ago. Now, if you commit murder within that week that you're out, you are tried on the basis of that sin, not the previous one, because your sin has already been judged. Your sin has already been condemned, and you have already paid for that sin. God does not punish sin twice. That is, he's not going to punish you for your sin and then Jesus. Or he does not punish Jesus for your sin and then punish you. If we come to God through Jesus Christ, we have mercy, we have grace, we have the punishment that was owed to us put on him because of the blood that he shed, because of the life that he gave. We have mercy shown to us. Perhaps he will have mercy. Yes, he will. In Jesus and in Jesus alone. God does not give mercy to you through the things that you do. He does not give mercy to you on the basis of the places that you go. He does not give mercy to you on the basis of the things you claim. He gives mercy to you on the basis of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And the promise is, no longer a perhaps, but seek him and live. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me and you will live. He is the living water. He is the bread that gives life. In Jesus and Jesus alone does the question of chapter 5, verse 15 actually get answered. It's almost hanging over the head of Israel. Will he have mercy? We don't know. Their lives were in shambles. Then at the end of Amos, chapter 9, this is one of the shocking things that I found as I've been reading through Amos a number of times. When you go through the Judges, right, the book of Judges, Israel sins, God punishes, they cry out, God redeems, right? It's a cycle over and over and over again. And eventually their period of judgment gets longer because their sin keeps getting worse and worse. Amos, chapter 9, verse 11. Perhaps God will have mercy. Perhaps he will. If you seek the Lord and live. Amos chapter 9 doesn't have that. It doesn't have the, and Israel cried out. In fact, in verse, or ch- sorry, chapter 7, they actually try to drive Amos away. Shut up, Amos. Go back down to the south. You do your thing down there. Make your money as a prophet down there. No more up here. We've got our prophets. We're fine. They show still no indication that they have any idea of how sinful they are and how holy God is. And yet, chapter 9, verse 11 says this. In that day, after exile, after destruction, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord. Who will do these things? The days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one who treads the grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's what God does for us in Jesus. Repaired after being broken down, restored after being ruined, rebuilt after being destroyed. He plants us, never again to be uprooted, because we're planted in Jesus, the victor of sin, over sin, and over death. So the question is, are you seeking him? Not are you seeking to get the benefits from God. Not are you seeking to have the things that he has promised for those who love him. Are you seeking God himself? It's, it's a travesty. It would be a travesty in my marriage for me to seek a relationship with my wife only for the benefits that she gives me. And she cleans up after me. She cleans up after my kids. She washes my clothes. She... She does everything. My life works because my wife is in it. But if I sought her for all of those benefits, that's not actually seeking her. That's not a real relationship. Are you seeking the Lord? Or are you just seeking him for the things that he gives you? Seek him and live. That's the promise. That's the guarantee in Jesus. Come to God through Jesus Christ. Find mercy and grace in him. Find mercy and grace and holiness and justice and wrath displayed at the cross. See what God has done for you in him. Seek him this week. You'll know if you've actually met with him, if there's a change. If something's changed in you, you've actually met with him. I'm going to invite our musicians up to close us in a time of song.